Welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoterra Nerd Podcast, Episode 10, in which I interview Very Honored Frater Ka. But first... Today's episode is brought to you in part by the letter E. E for engram. One, a mental image picture, which is a recording of a time of physical pain and unconsciousness. It must by definition have impact or injury as part of its content. Two, a specialized kind of facsimile. This differs from other mental pictures because it contains, as part of its content, unconsciousness and physical pain. 3. A complete recording, down to the last accurate detail, of every perception present in a moment of partial or full unconsciousness. 4. A theta facsimile of atoms and molecules in misalignment. 5. A unit of force which is held in because one has chosen force itself for his randomity. 6. The word engram is an old one, borrowed from biology. It means simply a lasting memory trace on a cell. It may be engraved on more than the cell, but up against processing it is not very lasting. 7. Physical pain. N-mest and N-theta held at a specific point on the time track. 8. A severe physical pain causes considerable analytical attenuation, shutting off the analyzer thoroughly for a period of time. This, technically, is an engram. Although any incident, painful or not, contained in the reactive mind and occluded by an aniton can be considered an engram. 9. A recording which has the sole purpose of steering the individual through supposed but usually non-existent dangers. 10. A severe area of plus or minus randomity of sufficient volume to cause unconsciousness. 11. A moment when the analytical mind is shut down by physical pain, drugs, or other means, and the reactive bank is open to the receipt of a recording. 12. Simply moments of physical pain strong enough to throw part or all of the analytical machinery out of circuit. They are antagonism to the survival of the organism, or pretended sympathy to the organism's survival. That is the entire definition. Great or little unconsciousness, physical pain, perceptic content, and contra-survival or pro-survival data. 13. Not a sentient recording containing meanings. It is merely a series of impressions, such as a needle might make on wax. These impressions are meaningless to the body until the engram keys in, at which time aberrations and psychosomatics occur. 14. A bundle of data which includes not only perceptics and speech present, but also metering for emotion and state of physical being. 15. An apparent surcharge in the mental circuit with certain definite finite content. That charge is not reached or examined by the analytical mind, but that charge is capable of acting as an independent command. And now for part three in our ongoing segment... The real Rosen Normally we would uh, be examining the next portion of the Fama, but I'm going to be skipping ahead a little bit just for today. The 5 equals 6 initiation, the Golden Dawn tradition, as well as the Fama Fraternitatis, from which portions of the 5 equals 6 initiation are derived, raise many questions. 
among them, how much of all of this is to be taken literally or figuratively? Is this just the partially remembered and partially embellished and perhaps intentionally obscured account of actual events? Well, I have no intention of answering any of these questions. What I want to present to you in this is just one possible answer to some aspect of one of these questions. While yet a youth, the boy who would later be known as Father C.R.C. accompanied a certain frater P.A.L. on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, Jerusalem. But frater P.A.L. died at Cyprus, and so the boy went on alone to Damascus. There was then in Arabia a temple of the order, which was called in the Hebrew tongue Damkar, that is, the blood of the Lamb, and there the boy was duly initiated and took the mystic title Christian Rosenkreutz, or Christian of the Rosy Cross. Now I have this theory, and I, I have no real evidence to support the theory other than my limited knowledge of Damascus from over here in Los Angeles. Um, but I, I think that it, it might be possible that the place where Christian Rosenkreutz got his name might have been connected to Ibn Arabi. Hear me out. Ibn Arabi was born in Al-Andalus, which would later be known as Spain, on July 28th, 1165, Gregorian. His father was widely known in Arabia as Al-Shaikh Al-Akbar, the greatest Shaikh, and he was also known in medieval Europe as Doctorus Maximus. Al-Andalus at that time had recently, about a hundred years earlier or so, undergone what could be accurately referred to as a Neoplatonic revival. Great philosophers of ancient Greece, such as Plato, were being widely published in Arabic and discussed by a diverse population of Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Ibn Arabi's family were Sufis, and the title The Greatest Shaykh meant that his father was known as the greatest of those authorized to teach, initiate, and guide aspiring dervishes. These eccentric ideas were a great deal more common the further west you traveled in the Arabian Empire, and more frowned upon in the increasingly dogmatic eastern areas closer to Mecca. Ibn Arabi brought these teachings from Spain to Damascus, and he spent the last 17 years of his life in Damascus. He had friends in high places there, and was greeted as a spiritual master, and given a spacious house by the Grand Qadi in the town of Ibn Zaki. In Damascus, he devoted himself to writing and teaching to fulfill the commandment of his Lord, Counsel my servants. The first thing he did was to collect and disseminate the works which had already been written. Copies were made, and reading sessions took place at his house. At the same time, he devoted his attention to completing the lengthy Futuhat. During this period of his life, he imparted direct instructions to many of his disciples, including Sadruddin al-Kunawi, who was brought up alongside Ibn Arabi in Malatya. He accompanied and served Kirmani on his travels in Egypt, Hijaz, and Iran. In his private collection, Sadruddin wrote that he had studied ten works of Ibn Arabi under him, and later Ibn Arabi gave him a certificate to freely relate them 
on his authority. He succeeded and discussed with Ibn Arabi no less than forty works, including the whole text of Futuhat, or Meccan Revelations, in twenty volumes. Ibn Arabi died in Damascus on November 10th of 1240, but his teachings, his house of learning, and the commandment to, quote, counsel my servants, was continued by his students. Then, 138 years later, in 1378 was born the chief and originator of our fraternity in Europe, who, while yet a youth, traveled to Damascus, was initiated into, quote, a temple of the order, end quote, and took on the name Christian of the Rosy Cross. So one possible answer to these questions is that the spacious house provided to Ibn Arabi by the Grand Qadi of the town of Ibn Zaki is the very same quote-unquote temple of the order where CRC was first initiated and where he took on his name. If this were the case, then the following would have been among the things that Christian Rosencruz studied there. The words of Ibn Arabi. The real made me contemplate the light of the veils as the star of strong backing rose. And he said to me, Do you know how many veils I have veiled you with? No, I replied. He said, With seventy veils. Even if you raise them, you will not see me. And if you do not raise them, you will not see me. If you raise them, you will see me. And if you do not raise them, you will see me. Take care of burning yourself. You are my sight, so have faith. You are my face, so veil yourself. O oh my God, gift me with a heart by which I may be devoted to you in utter poverty, led by yearning and driven by desire. A heart whose provision is fear of you and whose companion is restlessness, whose aim is your closeness and acceptance. In your nearness lies the consummation of those who aim and the fulfillment of the desire of those who search. O lover, whosoever you are, know that the veils between you and your beloved, whosoever he might be, are nothing save your halt with things, not the things themselves, as said by the one who hasn't tasted the flavor of realities. You have halted with things because of the shortcoming of your perception, that is, lack of penetration, expressed as the veil, and the veil is non-existence, and non-existence is nothingness. Thus, there is no veil. If the veils were true, then who got veiled from you? You should also have been in veil from him. Oh my God, you are self-standing by your own essence, encompassing with your qualities revealed through your names, manifest in your acts, and hidden by virtue of what is only known to you. You are alone in your majesty as you are the one, the unique, and you have singularized yourself as you permanently endure in eternity without beginning or end. You, you are God, who by virtue of oneness is the only one. With you there is none other than you, you there is, none but you. All praise belongs to God, who veiled us by himself. For the jealousy that anyone may know his core, he appeared as light and then got veiled from sights by his light. He manifested 
but got concealed from insights by virtue of his manifestation. Thus light entered in light, and self-manifestation got concealed in manifestation. So no sight falls but onto him. No outcomer comes out but from him. And no goal seeker eventually ends up but to him. So, O people of intellect, where is absence or veil? Tonight's guest is a very old friend. When I was a young man, a wee lad, back in the early to mid-90s, and uh, sometimes I would go to the temple, and it would turn out that there would be a substitute teacher. Well, it wasn't the class I was used to. It was Frater Ka, and that meant that I was probably going to have my knees bent with my feet pressed down against the floor and my back pressed against a wall, vibrating 21 times per sphere. The Reichian middle pillar, I believe it was called. Or the turbo middle pillar, where we had the four worlds. I added the other four worlds. <laughs> it became known as the Klopothic middle pillar, but I think it was a complete middle pillar. It just included all the below stuff. I, I don't practice that anymore. But anyhow. It's an old friend, another old friend, and uh, I'm glad you all get to meet him. And so, without further ado, let's get to that interview, shall we? Welcome to the Esoteric Nerd Podcast, brother. How are you? I'm doing okay. I, uh, I I see you've been very prolific. You've written a number of books. You've got a school you're running. And uh, I, I just wanted, I mean, you and I kn have known each other many years, but I mostly just wanted to uh, have the world find out a little bit about you and, uh, and what you're up to. Sure. Uh, I miss chatting with you, too. And, uh, yeah, let's, let's get started. Tell me a little bit about your name. Which one? I once knew you as Very Honored <laughs> Frater Ka. Ah, right, right. That's basically my... Uh, Magical motto when I was in uh, same order as you were in, mm -hmm. and um, the motto was received by a meditation uh, before my five six initiation. I was doing uh, meditation with uh, the great Archangel Michael, and I wasn't really asking for a name, but I was doing a meditation since it's a solar initiation and it's initiation to five six, and I received my motto. Which was pretty long, so I looked at that and I went, okay, okay, okay. So what I'm going to do, I am going to take the first letter of my motto and the last letter of my motto, and that became K-A, or Ka, mm -hmm. right? And uh, it was interesting enough that I did the numerology in Hebrew, gematria of my motto, and it added up to 999. So I was like, okay. You sewed. Uh, well, a triple nine, yes, you sewed. Well, we did meet, I think, when, we're, when you were still early in, in uh, Temple of Isis, right? We did, yeah, at the uh, Mystic Eye. Right, but you didn't actually get to talk to me very much. Um, no, my, my actual legal name is uh, Inmerkar. Oh. Uh, that, that's the name of my passport. Okay. Um, the Mimo is the title that my mom 
would call me. She she has a habit of calling all of her kids with cutesy names. <laughs> so, you know, my, my poor brother gets the nickname Foodie. And, <laughs> and we kind of joke about that because she likes to eat a lot and he's a bit chubby. But so she calls him Foodie. But his actual real name is Fat, mm. which is which is uh, Tiger. Nice. Right. But uh, which does this with the word Tiger. But she calls him Foodie. So she didn't get to choose to... Um, she didn't get to choose the names for her kids that she wanted. So she ended up just picking up cutesy names for all of us. So I ended up with Mimo for a while. So after you, um, you were imperator of a traditional Golden Dawn temple for a while, and then you established the Angelic College of Damkar. I'm going to be going over the Fama Fraternitatis in uh, this and other episodes. There's one point where the person who becomes known as Christian Rosencruz travels to Damascus, or Damkar in the Hebrew tongue. Right. And uh, I was wondering if, if there was any connection between that and the, uh, the name of, of that order that you had uh, established back then. Well, there is an overlap, but it's not the reason why the name was picked. Mm -hmm. That had nothing to do with that. We didn't choose the name because of the Fama. Um, what we what we decided to do, and I say we because it wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. It was actually more than one person at the time when the group initially started. Um, what we decided to do was not get stuck with the idea of names. And I have to admit, that's kind of fault of your organization <laughs> or that our organization in the beginning because they, they went through all kinds of drastic changes. Right. And it kept changing. And a lot of time, the, the organization name got changed because they had no choice. Right. There was always uh, some legal element involved, some uh, marketing purpose involved, something of the sort. Uh, it was a secular reason why the names were constantly changed. Right. right? So... What we decided to do was say, look, what we're going to do is we're going to select names that are talismanic, that represent an energy we're working with, an energy we're trying to attract, uh, a phase of development that spiritually that we're on, not anything to do with secular marketing or, or anything like that, just purely something that we're at as far as a spiritual level mm -hmm. or you know, development phase. And when we reach the end of the line, we will drop the name and we will just start the new name. And the real name or the internal name that of the society will, will remain invisible. It will not be actually revealed publicly. Mm. It will be kept secret. And as far as the outer world, the outer world is concerned, we will just keep reinventing our names as we went, we went by. Right. So in the initial stage, we were working with the energy of Damkar. So I'm not referring to the order in, in the Middle East. I'm actually referring to the real translation of the word, which is blood of the lamb. So we were focused on the blood of the lamb energy. Mm. And that was inherent in the, the way the temple was structured, the symbolism of our rites. Everything that we were doing was pretty much focused on that. And then we shifted it. We, we moved into the next phase, and it became the white flame. Which is where we're at right now, the white flame. And the blood of the lamb and the white flame, they both actually represent the same force, the same being that we're kind of working with, the same energy we're working with, but at different phases of development. Good. Okay, so in your considered opinion, when it comes to working with Jin, is there anyone who's more of an expert than you? <laughs> I think there's lots of people who are more experts than me. 
the <laughs> I will never claim ever to be the number one expert in any field ever. That's just way much of a megalomania. Well, in my circle of friends, that you're definitely at the top of that. You know, that was completely accidental. It wasn't that I set out to be the number one expert. It just happened that, um, you know, I was the only Arab, really, who was active in the circles, who spoke pretty much strong Arabic and had access to the information. Um, did I work heavily with the jinn? Sort of, I did in the beginning and in the middle. Most of my experiences with the jinn really comes from the jinn themselves. For example? In the story I put out in Magic That Works, it was me and um, one of our sisters in the temple of Tehuti. You know, we were watching the movie Independence Day. Mm-hmm. And it had just come out. Okay. And I was doing research, being the Virgo that I am, I was doing a lot of research on trying to figure out what the Ring of Solomon really looked like. That was sort of my point of focus, the Ring of Solomon. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just digging every manuscript I could get my hands on. And one of those manuscripts was one of my first books on magic, which is Son of Knowledge or Shams al-Ma'arif al-Kubra. And in it, there were a number of genie names that I have memorized. Right? And um, anyway, so we were, we were pretty much driving... And as we were driving, we were talking about the movie. We were talking about the aliens. And the conversation inevitably went into the jinn. And I was saying, well, you know, some people would say that all these various UFO encounters probably are nothing more than the jinn themselves. Hmm. Right. And um, she says, really? I said, well, they're supposed to have their own civilization. They're supposed to have a number of powers. Right, being going to space is being one of those powers they possess, being able to ascend to space, and they're supposed to be able to do things like teleportation. And she said, "Well, that'll be really nice because it's one thirty in the morning, and I'm really tired. I really don't want to drive. You think the jinn would teleport?" I said, "Why not? We can ask them. You know, let's play. Let's ask a genie to teleport this car." Mm-hmm. She says, yeah, that would be really, really cool. The thing is, I didn't ask anybody. Because in my brain at that time, you know, growing up and um, getting most of my education, you know, in a scientific mindset and being in the West and having a scientific mindset in the West, the idea of teleportation was fiction. It was Star Wars. It was, sorry, it was Star Trek. You know, it was fiction. So even though I've read it in the grimoires, and they said that the jinn can do this, in my brain, it wasn't really real. I didn't have that in my head, that they could actually really do this. It was, you know, a fantasy. Right. You know, Aladdin and the Lamb. No, it was, it was, it was um, Aladdin and the Lamb. It was a story. It, 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 Arabian Nights. It was it's fable. I didn't really, really, really believe they could teleport. Mm-hmm. Well, to our shock, they did that. Nice. They teleported our car, right? And I sat there. She was she was pretty okay. She she was you know she was the type that when she gets into shock, she just sits there silently, staring at everything. And she was the one driving, so it was 
really a shock for her because she had to press the brakes really quickly before we ended up in the water. Because huh. we were because we were driving from I don't know if you've been to Vancouver or not. I have. Okay. Well, we were at Matrotown. So we were driving from Matrotown. I don't know if you remember Matrotown. We were driving from Matrotown and we were heading over to Surrey. Mm-hmm. And you have to cross the bridge. And we were at the intersection point of the bridge where you just have to make that last turn and then you have to get on the bridge. Right. And we saw all the signs. We know where we are. I mean, we know where we are. This is our city. We know where we are. And when we got teleported, we were looking at the ocean. Hmm. There was no road. That's a trip. There was simply no road. It wasn't like, you know, you got turned around and you're driving. No, there was no road. And the car was still moving? She was still driving. Wow. But before, before we were teleported, we both experienced a kind of um, a weird temporal shift in our consciousness. It was like everything began to move weirdly, you know, uh, oddly. It wasn't normal. We were both were commenting that why is everything around us looking suddenly like it's a movie and it's, you know, like either fast forward or slow. You know, it wasn't really like it should look like. Right. But the teleportation experience, all of it happened within seconds. After we started noticing the shift, it took only seconds. So she was still driving because the light had turned from red to green and she was crossing. Here she is crossing the four-way intersection and instead of making it to the end of the intersection, we were both looking at the road leading to a bridge. Now we were looking at the ocean front and no road. So she had to break before we ended up on the water. That sounds like a you know a fifth dimensional crossing of some kind. I don't know. Don't ask me to explain it. Uh, I don't know how they done it, but I just know what what actually we were experiencing. That is a truth. And as as we got there, you know, we were she 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 stopped the car and she's now sitting quietly in shock. The thing is, I've never been to that part of town, and the way the buildings were structured, I didn't see these buildings before. Even so, I live in the city. I didn't see this particular building before. So I was starting to figure out if I'm still even in Canada. So I was looking like, are we in China? Are we in Japan? Are we in Korea? What happened? What happened to us, right? Yeah. I was freaking out because, you know, I'm, I'm already hyper. So it's like, I'm seriously freaking out. And she's just sitting there quietly and she stares at it. And then I realized we're not only not on the road anymore and we're staring at a waterfront. We actually have... A ceiling of our heads. We were in a parking lot. Hmm. We've been teleported from the road intersection into a parking lot looking at the waterfront. And I was like, do you recognize where we are? Because now I'm starting to calm down. <laughs> and she looks at me, she says, we're still in Vancouver. I said, okay, do you know where in Vancouver? She says, yeah, I know that building. I said, all right, where are we? She said, we're across from North Vancouver. I said, what do you mean? She says, we're in the exact opposite point. So, of course, we had to, you know, get out of the parking lot and get back into the road. And, and we're driving. And I'm sitting here thinking, what just happened? When as we were driving, I could see with my eyes open what looked like a figure coming out the window really, really fast. Super fast. And he was wearing a purple robe, but his face was not human. He had no, no eyes, nothing like that. The rest of his features were like a shadow. But he was wearing what looked like a purplish robe. And I remembered this figure from before because he was mentioned in Sadaf Knowledge Grimoire and I had worked with him mm -hmm. years before. And, and he goes right through the windowsill. 
you know, through the windshield. And he sits right behind us. I looked at her and I said, did you see something? She said, of course. What did you see? She said, I saw something wearing a purple robe go through our window shield and sit right beside behind us. Hmm. I said, so you mean you saw the same guy? She says, yeah, he's right behind us wearing a purple robe. So I knew who it was and I started talking to him quickly. He was very brief, really. He just said, I teleported this car to show you what we can do. Don't fuck with us, basically, and don't share our secrets. Hmm. Do not reveal the information that you know about us. Keep quiet. Because we could do this at any time to anybody, basically. And he just left. See, we looked at the clock when we left, and we knew what time we were teleported. We had, a, we had an idea of the time the teleportation has actually happened. Mm-hmm. And then we drove home. We arrived at the house. No more surprises. But there was one catch. The time it took for us to drive halfway to our destination, get teleported the exact opposite point, drive back to Metrotown, drive again as we were driving before, all the way into the house, in the temple house in, in, in Surrey, was less time than had we just driven straight. Hmm. We calculated 40 minutes or 35 minutes, between 35 to 40 minutes, are missing. So I'm looking here at Ishtar Publishing. Is that your website or is that... It's a company that produces my books. Okay. And um, I'm looking at the, uh, the section. So for those listening, that's ishtarpublishing.com. You can find my you can find my website at uh, sacredmagic.org and whitemagicmastery.com and gin-dijin.com. Those are my personal sites. Okay, and it uh, looks like you have a number of books on esoterica and and gin. And um, do you have any thoughts about book M? Book M? You talking about the fama? There was something about Book M in, you know, in the context of the Christian Rosencruz, uh, but then there's a theory that might actually be the Picatrix. Christian Rosencruz had translated the Picatrix into Latin. Well, the, the thing is this. Uh, when you're dealing with Arabic magic grimoires, there are very specific symbols or names that often repeat themselves. Regardless of the text you're looking at, those symbols or those names would appear there. You cannot pick a magic book on Arabic without these symbols or these set of names being referenced in some form. These set of, na- these set of symbols don't make it anywhere in European literature, as far as I recall. They don't appear in the Fama. They don't get passed mm-hmm. around to the Golden Dawn. They don't um, appear in the three books of occult philosophy, the only time a variations of these books, um, sorry, a variation of these symbols appear in a book was actually um, a book by Kaplan on the, on the Kabbalah and meditation. And he has these symbols in a kind of corrupted form in his book and talks about how they were used in North Africa for North African Jews, you know, or, or um, Spanish Jews for mm-hmm. 
attaining an experience of the Merkaba. And he leaves it at that. He doesn't go any further than this. And he doesn't reproduce the, the symbols accurately either. He kind of creates a, a version of them. I'm guessing, you know, he didn't want to reveal what he considered to be sacred knowledge to the, right. you know, the public, the masses. But these symbols don't appear anywhere in European literature or text to the Middle Ages to the time of the Golden Dawn. So I am not really 100% sure that Christian Rosenkreuz's story of traveling to the Middle East is accurate. Oh, of course. One of my things is I, I like to find what, you know, what it was that the people that published it were talking about, if anything. Um, if it was a fiction, then what is it referencing or what is what truths is it drawing from? So that's why I, that's the only reason I ask. Is I'm sort of in an ongoing quest to figure the thing out. Rayat al-Hakim is attributed to the Majriti, and Majriti's name starts with M. Um, the book itself gained more fame in Europe than it ever did in the Middle East. The Picatrix, the actual Picatrix, Rayat al-Hakim, the Picatrix, mm-hmm. it, was, it, was compiled, it was compiled by al-Majriti, and, you know, his book is pretty famous in... European occultism as sort of a mystical text that never really gets translated into English. It gets referenced. Right. It gets that mystique around it. But in the Middle East, it's not that, it's not that famous or popular. Um, it exists, you know. It, it gets translated. It's printed and reproduced from time to time. But it's not that popular compared to how it is popular in... European or Western culture. So if somebody was to translate this text and publish it in, in, in Europe or North America, he's doing this because Europeans and North Americans want it. Right. Not because it's the de facto go back to source in the Middle East. It's not. I noticed um, some overlap in uh, between the Picatrix and some of the Divine Pymander of Hermes uh, specifically the parts where they drew the adoration of the Lord of the Universe from uh, the Golden Dawn and other Masonic traditions, Holy Art Thou, Lord of the Universe, Holy Art Thou, which nature has not formed. But it goes on and on, and there's more to it in the Pymander, and then it could be found in the Picatrix as well. The Picatrix is a compilation. A lot of the Arabic texts are compilations as well. For example, if you take a look at the Son of Knowledge, Shemsul Ma'arif, the original version, which was verified to have been written during the author's life, when he was still alive, was approximately maybe 80 pages, 80 or 90 pages. But Atami had died, and then it, the whole thing got reproduced, reprinted. It almost made it to nearly a thousand pages. So, <laughs> you know, they've, they've compiled. And the, the problem with the compilation back then is that it, they did not give reference to where they got their material. And sometimes they would take prayers, conjurations, they will take even entire books and they will just mix them together and you don't know when one begins and one ends. You just have this whole collection of information put in together. Now, as far as Hermes is concerned, Hermes is a critical figure in the Arabic culture and Arabic lore. The Emerald Tablet of Hermes, oldest and really uh, only known original copy of that was in Arabic. I did a translation of it it was on Wikipedia for a while, and then they got taken out out of fear of copyright infringement. A lot of the Arabic texts, even grimoires dealing with the evocation, they make references to Hermes and Hermetics. So 
there, there's a definitely a reoccurring thread to the Arabic literature. Mm-hmm. So it would not be a, f- a stretch for any of these texts to contain original Hermetic documents or literature that was translated into Arabic and then retranslated back again into Latin and then from there into English. That makes sense. So I guess as an esoteric nerd myself, uh, my interest would be in finding the source documents or the earlier, if there's a document that I know the English version of or that I, I have the Latin version of, then I would be interested in the Arabic version of, or if there's an even earlier, maybe Greek version of, of these texts. The absence of the Greek version, though, brings into my mind whether or not there was ever a Greek version. Yeah. I think they found, in some cases, they, would, they have found Syriac or Aramaic version. So that would make sense. Whether or not there's a Greek version, I don't know. Because the Greeks preserved much of their culture, much of the literature. You can go and find digs. You know, they don't do the same stupid stuff the Arabs do where you blow shit up all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes they, they would get blown up by uh, Persians yeah, and sometimes others. they get blown up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and other you know, Greeks. It's, it's an equal opportunity boom. <laughs> <laughs> it is no. really sad about all the, the ancient artifacts that every time it's like a blow to the heart every time I hear about some new well, ancient. The, the sad thing about it is, you know, I don't know many Westerners know this, but this actual group was recorded in Islamic literature as part of a prophecy. They had a prophecy on this particular group coming up and arising. Everything from the color of the flag to their methods to the fact that they would use the way the styles of the names were styled, the group name, all already in existence in Arabic literature a thousand years ago. So, are they aware of that, or are they? Everybody's are they aware just of fulfilling that. the prophecy. Yeah, no, everybody's. So aware. it's sort of like back when Bush and and uh, Saddam Hussein were playing out the Book of Revelation just because it's such a hot button for all these ignorant voters. It's also in the Arabic text. You see, it's all there. The the, yeah. the prophecy starts with an embargo on Iraq, followed by an embargo on Syria. Then it talks about the leader of Iraq basically being deposed. And it even make mentions of things fo- like falling from the sky, like being bombed from the sky. They didn't have airplanes back then, but they kind of refer to it like that. The planes of Megiddo. Oh, they didn't say planes. They just, are oh, you thinking like planes as in ground? Ar- uh, yeah. Armageddon, the, or- yeah. the word origin. Yeah, it's, it's, we're talking about the Arabic text. They didn't have Armageddon in the Arabic text. But they did oh, right, have right, something, right. but they did have something similar. They called it the Malhama, which is basically the great butchering, mm. the great massacre. So in their, in their story narrative, first you would have the embargo on Iraq, then you would have the embargo on Syria, then you would have the war on Iraq, then you would have the war in Syria, then you will have the group that will come out wearing carrying a black flag, and then they went to detail describing this group. And then after that, a number of other events would happen, and then there would be a huge massacre in the region like never seen before. So like a global war, hmm. I'm guessing. And then you will have the whole thing happening with, with Jesus and the Antichrist. And now it dovetails straight in with the Christian and Christian variation of the book of Revelation. Oh, good. Uh, no, it's not good. Because <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you think about it, if you really think about it, the, if you ask the Christian, their idea of the Antichrist, their archetype of the Antichrist is most likely going to be an Arab right. and most likely going to be a Muslim. If you ask the Muslims, their version of the Antichrist is going to be a Jew. <laughs> He's going to be Jewish. 
And if you ask the Jews, I have no idea what they all think. But you know, <laughs> yeah. but say, uh, no, we don't have Messiah. a Christ. We don't have an Antichrist either. Uh, fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In the end of the story, no matter how you spin it, every group's Messiah is the other group's Antichrist. So you, what are you going to end up with? A big war between the three world religions? I mean, how that's going to pan out? Well, so speaking, it's not really good. Speaking of revelations, though, uh, there's the Meccan revelations by Ibn Arabi that you and I spoke about before. Right. I'm familiar with, with a portion of his work. I mean, Ibn Arabi is a lifelong study. So if I was, you know, claim that I'm familiar with his huge body work, I'd I, right. be exaggerating. His Meccan revelation are definitely his famous magnum opus. One of my favorite texts of his, though, that has been attributed to him is his interpretation of the Quran itself. Mm. Where he's gone through every single verse in the Quran and interpreted in a completely esoteric way. So it mirrors the Zohar. Nice. And how the Zohar approaches the Bible. Right. Uh, of course, you know, Ibn Arabi is considered a heretic. Yeah. The average... He got away with it, though. He was like the first one to get away with it. He was one of the first ones to get away with it. Um, but even today, he's still considered a heretic. You know, they, they, right. they cuss on him. They curse his name. So it, yeah. unless you are a mystic already, unless you're a Sufi already, or you have inclinations in that directions, you're not going to be investing a lot of your own effort in reading and figuring out what he's saying. And I assure you, it is not easy. His writing and his approach is definitely uh, way beyond what most people are easy, you know, quick to grasp. It requires a certain level of consciousness elevation before you can even figure out what he's saying. Right. Because um, even if you read the words, the full implication, the full meaning of what he's trying to say is very, very elevated. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a reading by an adept. A basic neophyte will just struggle with this. and be like, well, okay. Ibn Arabi's discourse has always been about the idea of the perfect man, which is Adam Kadman. He had a few ideas that are not orthodox, right? And I think part of it had to do with his encounters that he says has happened with the immortal, the green man. Hmm. Uh, the green man being his teacher. So the same green man that popped up in the Quran as having appeared to Moses uh, at one point. Is that the green man that they have, like the face with the woodsman with the leaves and everything? That's, that's I think, more European. Oh, I, right, right, I, don't, right. I, I think their version of the green man, he's, um, he has a green rug. Mm. He basically just lays out this green rug and he sits there for prayer. He just likes green. He uses the color green heavily. Mm. And um, according to the narrative, he's an immortal. You know, he doesn't die. Right. He's still alive. He still walks around. Thousands of years later, he's still walking around. Which I think is sort of taken from the ancient Near Eastern idea of the immortal sage. Kind of like uh, Adapa. You know, he, attains, he seeks out immortality and attains it and then just travels around the world passing on wisdom. But he only selects and chooses what ends up becoming great teachers of their time. Great masters of their time. Makes me think of the eight immortals in uh, the Chinese system. Well, the eight immortals of the Chinese system is, is, is sort of copied in some way from the seven plus one immortals of the um, Hindus, which is copied from seven plus one immortals of the Sumerian, hmm. which also appear among the Greek. And the same guys appear. It goes everywhere. back as far as the Neanderthal. 
Yeah, they just reappear. It's the same story reappear, but they're not human, huh? So this is this is the sort of the side effect of the story. Right. Is they're not really really human. I, I think they're pretty much the influence behind the idea of the Bani Elohim or the Elohim directly, the Elohim being the gods, so right. to speak. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. This has actually has been a lifelong journey. Arabic magic is very expansive, and it contains a lot of things. I mean, in the Son of Knowledge, there's reference to, this, to the world of Jabarut, which is Giborah, the world of Malakut, which is Malkut. You know, the, the, the world, then they talk about the world of Ibda, which is basically Briar and Azalut and all of this stuff. So there, all of the stuff that you see in traditional Kabbalah has some kind of parallels in Arabic text. And one of the things that's very critical in Arabic text has parallels in the Kabbalah but got lost somewhere in Western literature is the science of the letters or Amr al-Huruf, which is basically literal Kabbalah. Now, I remember in the Golden Dawn we talked about literal Kabbalah and practical Kabbalah. And we said, you know, this is literal Kabbalah and this is practical. We're the practical people. <laughs> like, you know, practical Golden Dawn magic. Yep. When, I, when I started looking into the Arabic text, it became very evident that literal Kabbalah is the key to the practical Kabbalah. That if, if you don't have mastery of this, your ability to fully succeed in magic is going to be, um, in their minds, questionable. Right. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a complete surprise because magic in the end is about language. We always talk about will, thanks to Crawley, but, <laughs> <laughs> but in essence, even if you add will, it's about language. I mean, I don't know many magicians who will do a Jedi mind trick and they will just focus on an object and will it to levitate. Right. You know, there's always going to be an evocation. There's going to be a chant, a mantra. I call thee, I summon thee, whatever. Uh, even if you're doing the chaos magic route and you're coming up with gibberish that's supposed to have meaning to you, it's still words you're using. And that's sort of the key. They understood this and they made it, and they made it, a, made it an important part of their... Cosmology. So you began with the letters, and then you moved on from the letters to the angels, and from the angels you moved on to the planets and the elements, and the planets and the elements, you know, you moved on to the jinn, and, and then you moved into the underworld, and you just, you just kind of went to this progression, right? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of their focus. So this has been my primary point of study. I have been experimenting and researching extensively on the literal Kabbalah. Now, I, I'm known in the West as the Jinn man, but in practice, <laughs> I am I'm actually the guy that spends a lot of time trying to work out the literal Kabbalah because to me, therein lies the keys. If I use the right word, the Jinn will show up pretty fast. If I don't use the proper word, I'm going to huff and puff and, and lose my voice mm. trying to summon it. And a lot of people, you know, they say, well, uh, I don't think they fully understand the true power of this here. I'll give you an example. I had um, I had a student. I still have a student. He's still he's still my student. He's still my friend, actually, one of my mm-hmm. good friends. I called him up. He he goes to work, and he at the time he lived in Texas, and he was uh, a fencing instructor. So he would teach fencing, and then he would come home. Pretty tired, obviously, but you know he'll, he'll he'll come home, and I called him up at like 10 p.m. his time after work, 
I said, what are you doing? I'm chilling out. You know, I had a pretty quiet day. I'm relaxing, blah, blah, blah. Would you be open for an experiment? Would you be my guinea pig? What are we doing? I'm just going to say something in Arabic. Okay? Hey, just tell me if you feel anything. What are you doing? Oh, no, I'm not telling you. I'm just going to say it in Arabic, and you tell me if you feel something. All right. So I did it. And what I did is I had created this mantra using a formula from an old Arabic manuscript. It's in the manuscript. I didn't make it up. It's already there. Mm -hmm. And I just copied the formula, and then I created these set of names, and I charged the spirits of these names, the Rohaniya, which I think often gets translated as intelligence in the Golan Dawn system. Mm, from the Chaldean. But, yeah, but it's, it's, it's the actual, they're the living soul, the living spirit. Not as in spirit as you would think, you know, like Gawadic spirit, but like the living spirit, the emanation mm -hmm. of, of the actual letter. So I, oh, intelligences, got it, okay. Yeah, yeah, the, the, like the fifth element, right? Right. So I, I would call it up and I would say, okay, go to this guy, but I, you know, I didn't, that I was talking to. I don't want to say his name because he you know I'm, you of know, but I just did the guy I'm talking to and make him feel very heavy and very sleepy. That was the command. Now, there is no visualization. I didn't sit here and, and try to visualize. I did not will. I didn't conjure or evoke. I merely chanted the mantra, which he doesn't understand, and called on the Rohaniya of the mantra to do this for me. And the results were immediate. He started coughing. He couldn't breathe. I, th I thought he was going to die, actually. He was having a hard time breathing. He was collapsing on the, on the couch, couldn't move a muscle. You know, he had a headache, he, he, which felt like a mountain was in his chest. He said, I have a mountain on my chest. <laughs> He's having trouble breathing. So I reversed it. I had created another mantra set for fire. So I used the fire and I called that out to give him energy, give him vitality and remove this pressure that he was experiencing and this heaviness. And immediately, he went from being not able to breathe or move to jumping back out of you know, his couch and full of energy, which was cool. Then he asked me what I did, and I explained what I did. Then I called him the next day, and it was I called him a bit late. You know, I, I sucked that way. I called him a bit late. It was like <laughs> 1 a.m. And I'm hearing banging, banging, banging. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm building shelves at 1 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I'm building shelves. Well, aren't you tired? You had fencing. He said, yeah, I had fencing. And then I went to the racetrack and I raced. He likes to race. I went to the racetrack and I raced. And I came home, watched a movie, had dinner. It's 1 a.m. I have a lot of energy, so I'm building shelves. I'm like, wow, when, you know, aren't you, did you get enough sleep? He said, no, I haven't slept since the last time you did the fire mantra. Better than caffeine, that's for sure. Better than, better than caffeine, right. <laughs> so it does effectively, if you look at Arabic magic, this is a lot of what they do. They create these personalized chants, these personalized names of power. Then they have these angels, which are also extracted based off the literal Kabbalah. And then they have names of genie, also extracted using the literal of Kabbalah. And then they create these personalized magic squares, and then they combine it all together with the energy of the planets. And voila, you have their magic system. Excellent. That's how it works. And it's, it's devotional. It's theurgy. You know, they, they, there's lots of prayers involved. But it's, it's mathematically based, really. It's about 
sounds, vibration, music, numbers, and then they add the angels and the and the gin with that, and they just put them all together, and then you have this really nice, cool system. Very interesting. I'll have to learn some Arabic so that I can get a little deeper into it. The first 22 letters of the Arabic alphabet is exactly the same as the Hebrew. Oh, good. And, and the hypothesis has been going on for a while among certain circles that the double letters of the Hebrew are actually beforehand were separate letters themselves mm. and that the actual letters of the Hebrew were the same as the Arabic, 28-28. And what they did in Hebrew, they just doubled them, doubled the sounds into the same letter. While the Arabic kept the sounds separate letters. What can you say briefly about the 28 mansions of the moon? Don't go to the moons. This is very dangerous stuff. Okay, okay. The, the jinn are very protective of this. Uh, we know the mansions. We mm -hmm. have them, right? We, we know what they are. We have them listed. The Arabic books will, will go one step further and tell you if the moon is in this mansion, the energy of this letter of the alphabet will descend and you will have these overall effects, you know. Uh, this is a good time to do work of love. This is a good time to travel. This is a good time to to go fishing. You know, whatever. They just tell you what hmm. it what it does, and and they correspond the mansions of the moon with the Arabic alphabet, and that's listed. What they don't go very far, and the Western literature doesn't go very far because this stuff is actually protected by the jinn. The jinn will kill for that. They don't want you to know this information. Um, I don't know why, but they, they, they guard it severely. So Proceed with caution. Yeah, proceed with caution. We've if tried. At all. We, we, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you think I'm kidding you, but I'm not. No, no, I'm not. I, 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 I'm I was, sincerely getting this information on behalf of whoever's listening. Doc, the same, same student of mine, uh, he was my guinea pig again. <laughs> and <laughs> this was just a couple of years ago. And we started working on the mansions, actually. I had contacted one of the ancient genies and, and he gave me information on the mansions, how to activate something with the mansions. That information is not public. Nobody knows it. It's, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. He gave me the clue for it and I was, I was researching it. And I was talking to my friend who also from time to time, you know, make his own contact with the jinn. And he was like, sure, you know, we, we can, we can figure this out more. We can, between me and you, we can, we can research this. We can come up to some answers. The moment we began digging into that thing, he started to get heavily attacked. Hmm. And, um, you know, he woke up one day and his cat's neck was broken and twisted in weird form in the middle oh, of his kitchen. How terrible. You know, oh no, it was just, you know, severe like that. You know, he would get slapped by the, every time he starts to work on this with me, he would get physically attacked and he'd be getting from his nose. So, the severity of what happened scared him because he has kids. So he decided to quit magic almost completely. Hmm. You know, he hasn't done rituals in, in almost a year or two. He just like left the whole thing behind. He's gone from being all gone ho to just quitting the whole thing because he got scared. Right. And the jinn were very clear, you don't touch this. The mantras of the moons are off limits to humans. You don't go there. Now, why is it off limits? I don't know. What I am, what I'm talking about right now on my lecture, uh, the webinar mm -hmm. on, on the 33 lights, is actually about the watchers. And when you think of the watchers, the first thing you think about is the Book of Enoch, and you think about these angels that came down, you know, uh, had the romp with a bunch of human females, and got 
chastised and, and put down into the pit for a while and slapped and then God got really angry and just flooded the whole planet, you know, flushed it all down the toilet and then started all over again. That's basically what people remember from it. It's just what people remember from it. But there's actually a few things in the story that's, that's kind of like um, enigmatically uh, slid over. First of all, the watchers that came down were only a small segment. The, the rest of the watchers never came down. They stayed in heaven. So the fallen watchers are only a couple of hundred. The rest of them are still up in heaven. Mm. And they first appear in the book of Daniel, and it refers to them as the holy ones. And then they are referred to further on down as the seraphim and the cherubim. So that's a very specifically highly elevated class of angels we're talking about. Mm. That are the watchers. Okay. The second thing, when God punishes the watchers that came down, he, according to the book of Enoch, they're to be imprisoned on earth for 70 generations. Mm -hmm. Now, a generation is 70 years. So the total punishment for these angels is 4,900 years. Okay? Mm -hmm. If you're an angel whose life expands, you know, maybe, maybe 100 million years, 49,000 years is like sitting in the corner for two minutes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a very... For some reason, that, but I, you know, in, according to the story, we ended up getting the, the bad end of the stick because, you know, we got the flood. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's reincarnation, then it's not so bad. It's like we no, got, we got fresh so bodies. Bad, I'm talking about the bottom of the story. Yeah, yeah. You got the flood, you know, and they got to sit in the corner for the equivalent of two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're in the dark room for two minutes. Come back up. You know, it wasn't, wasn't really that long. But the... Some people say that the actual imprisonment of the Watchers was around 3000 BC. Oh, so, so that would put it at about 100 years ago or so. Yeah, 100 years ago would be when they came out, which, oh. which would be around World War One, World War Two, and right. the bomb. Mm, do you think they took human form and became MacArthur and a few others? There's that song by Rolling Stones where he's uh, driving a tank and has a general's rank. <laughs> No, but if you take a look at the actual original story, though, the one in the Book of Enoch, right. uh, Azaziel and those guys when they came down, Shamiyaza and all of them, they taught mankind war, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. They, one of the original narratives is they taught mankind war. But the, so this is, this is the kind of the common theme. But my interest is not really in the Fallen Watchers. There's, there's a lot of left-hand practitioners out there. They can have fun with them. I'm not really, <laughs> I'm not really interested in the Fallen They're not my department. The left-hand part. Yeah, they're not my department. They're not my department. <laughs> I, I think there's a very famous magician. I can't really pronounce his name very well. But he, he likes to make offers about Azaziel. So, yeah, he, he, can, he can have fun. The, my interest really in them is that the Watchers which actually are referenced in um, Al-Buni, Son of Knowledge, as Al-Muraqibun, which really translates as watchers, are the same contrast by, by exploration of their history. I was able to trace them back to Sumerian times and other societies and other cultures as positive teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And when, when trying to figure out what, kind of beings we're dealing here with. And, hey, come on. I mean, they're, Enochian is all about watchers. Every time you stand in the temple and say, oh, you angels of the watchtower of the east, what right. are you calling? <laughs> oh, the watchers, buddy. You're not calling, you know. <laughs> that's the order of angels, the watchtower of the east. Even come the on, Wiccans watch. call on the watchtowers. The watchers, exactly. Even the Wiccans call on the watchers. Um, and and um, 
Avet LSD, you know, what are the watchtowers? There are four angels. So he identifies already that the watchtowers are angels. They're not only four, not thousands, four. But interestingly enough, in ancient time, the watches were also stars. And if you take a look at the narrative of, in Hebrew text, of the seraphim and how they are identified, the way they're described, the seraphim, you will see a lot of parallel with the sun as far as their nature. Fiery serpents. Ever take a look at the sun? See those fiery serpents coming out of the sun all the time? Mm -hmm. Right? You know, solar flares. You got all that coming out all the time? For sure. And, and they're also identified as, you know, moving very fast and they have different definitions and, and very luminous and bright, blah, blah, blah. And then their wings are all covered with eyes. Mm. Why? Because they watch always. They're watchers, right? So the watchers and the seraphim are not very different. They're pretty much functionally or intrinsically are the same. And they're easily connected with the stars. So we know in the Kabbalah that every single thing in the universe has an angel set over it. We're told that in the Kabbalah, right? Right. Every plant, every leaf, every person has the idea of a guardian angel, right? You're a person, you have a guardian angel. Everything in the universe has an angel set over it. So every star in the universe would have an angel set over it. Oh, at least one for sure. Yeah. At least one for sure. And those angels, in my, in my webinar, I propose are the same as the watchers, hmm. are the same as the seraphim. And the idea of stars being the same as angels is pretty evident when you take a look in, in the book of Revelation. I mean, I'm not a Christian, but I, I can read it. It's there. They talk about how, you know, these angels, these stars falling from, from, from heaven. And then later on it says, well, these stars are angels. So it, it identifies that, that the stars and angels are the same. Now, we tend to think of it symbolically. But you're saying literally. I am saying literally. Every star has a, every physical star has an angel residing over it. I'm not saying the star will fall. I'm saying that every star has an angel over it. It brings it down to earth. It, it's, it's rather than going into a, you know, into a board of a bunch of Enochian symbols and thinking you're going into some other dimension somewhere where things are totally different than they are in this universe. This brings it down to earth, yeah, no, you're, saying you're we're talking about the shamanic gods. We're talking about the Shinto gods. We're talking about the nature spirits. And it kind of like brings the whole thing around on its tail. I love that. I really do. Yeah, we're talking about something similar in that sense. Yeah. So when you're looking at the stars, when we do, you know, we always talk about, okay, I'm going to invoke Mercury. Well, invoking Mercury, mm -hmm. invoking, invoking Jupiter, invoking any of that is a leftover of the Greek religion where these, God, where these planets were also gods, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in some sense, though, the planet and the god are not the same thing. Right. So you could invoke the spirit of the planet Mercury, you can invoke the angel of the planet Mercury, and you can invoke the god Mercury. And while it's easy to lump them together into one thing, they're, mm -hmm. not, they're not identically the same thing. So, but by extension, this is where we stop. We go, we go to seven planets, and we throw the sun and the moon as part of the seven planets. And that's, that's where our system stops. You know, right. I see, see yeah, that in Victorian you know? England. Yeah, right. but this, everything stops. You got seven planets. You got seven magic squares, blah, blah, blah. In my book, the, uh, on the magic squares, I tried to break the mold. I said, no, you're not only going to get seven magic squares. I'm going to give you 700 magic squares. But mm. even so, I've given you 700 magic squares. The actual grid, you know, the size of the, of the square itself, you know, we, we pretty much take it that 
you know, 10, 12, 13 squares because we don't want to go too far. Though the Arabs went as far as 100, but never mind that now. <laughs> I built that before. I, I, it's pretty freaking huge. It covers your ceiling. The, wow. um, the actual, but we would stay there. So what I'm proposing in, in, the, in the webinar is saying, okay, what I have been working on is let's call on the angels of the stars from far away. Let's call on the angels of the star other than our sun. You're working Jupiter? Fantastic. Did you ever try to call the moons of Jupiter? Hmm, I haven't. You know, we think about our moon, but how about the moon of Jupiter? I've traveled there, but I haven't called on them. Call them. See, see, see what happens. Each moon is different, right? And you can easily extract the angelic names and the spirit names by using the literal Kabbalah. I was mentioning mm -hmm. that earlier, right? So you can create these names very easily if you understand the method and the system. And then you can call them. You can call on the spirits of the various um, moons of the planet. You can call on the various stars of the planet. So the 33 Light Seminar, what we're going to talk about are the angels of the 33 oldest stars in the entire Ooh, universe. Nice. We're going to call... And I will show you in that webinar how to call on the 33 angels. They're actually 66. 66 angels, two per star, for the 33 oldest stars in the universe. And bring that energy into your life here on Earth. So even though your feet is on the ground and you're looking up at the sky of your planet, you're connecting with the energy of a star that's one of the oldest in the entire universe. And calling on the spirit of that star to fill you, your mind, your consciousness, your spiritual energy, your aura, etc., and help you. How about black holes? Just those supermassive black holes. I know there's one that's uh, an entire spiral galaxy that once existed as now a supermassive black hole. Yeah, but I'm, I'm scared of black holes personally. So. <laughs> <laughs> go well, what about these stars, the old stars? How do we know that they haven't already become black holes? Because once they become black holes, they're not the stars anymore. So you're calling on them when they were stars? I'm, uh, you're calling on the currently existing old star. Currently to our eyes. Currently as far as existing. But if we, if they're the oldest, and the it takes the light, you know, some hundreds of thousands of years to it's get. It's not of the light. You're not dealing. You're not dealing with physical dimension here. Okay. okay. You know, you know, space is not as the interconnectedness of the universe. When you're talking about that level of interconnectedness, there's time, just and space doesn't become an issue. Right. Okay. You know, it, just it's, as a fellow Virgo, you know, I have to. <laughs> no, I, I'm talking here from the perspective of, of on a really sub-level, it, it stops becoming an issue. On, right. on, a, on a purely physical level, like on, you know, on your dimensional reality, you, you're measuring time moving around you, of course. You, know, you have to deal with distance and space. But that's sort of the issue. You know, people talk about astrology. They say, well, the planets are too far. They won't influence us. Yeah, of course the physical planet is not going to influence you. But the spiritual element, the, the spiritual energy inherent in that physical planet, the life force of that physical planet that exists in all things, even rocks and stones and plants and herbs, if it was to reach to you, it doesn't have to travel the speed of light. It's instant because that difference between you and it is not, doesn't exist. I could see that, you know, one of the moons, say, uh, the shepherd moons around the rings of Saturn that keep the, the rings in line, um, you just as a concept, for if nothing else, as a Jung, from a Jungian perspective, when I think of that planet, I think of 
these planets whose gravity just naturally go round and round keeping Saturn's rings in order. And to me, that has a message and a substance and a spirit. And if I connect with that spirit... Of course. I, for I forget what I was saying, but... Uh... <laughs> no, I know where you're going with that. And yes, yeah. you can. You can connect with that energy into your life. But and it I, might I, not I, matter as much where it is uh, in the sky... No, you know, it's not. But I can connect with it anyway. You can connect with it. You can absolutely connect with it. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Um, I was doing an experiment, actually. It wasn't really an experiment. I, w I was doing a working uh, a few days ago. And in one of my reports, I have... Um, Jesse Couture report. I have a list of basically celestial genie that correspond to the degrees of the zodiac. Mm-hmm. And what you do in that is you figure out, you know, you call them when the planets are corresponding to that degree. So if I want to work with Mercury, what I do is I look at, I do a, a chart for my current time and location, see what degree Mercury is in, and then I look at my table with a list of names, and then I use that particular uh, genie because right. the timing is the timing is accurate. And... I was doing this, and I was working with Jupiter. I was working with Venus and Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, and I was working all three. And um, you know, I was doing my planetary workings, and I was calling the Jin from that from that list. And I asked the Jin to open in my life, you know, the, the opportunities, right? Just kind of like whatever I'm working on, make make it happen. Mm -hmm. right? I'm not asking for something specific, just kind of like, you know, positive flux, positive flow. And I used the word open. Well, I did not know that by using the word open, I would actually open a portal. So Ooh. the energy, because I was thinking, you know, in my life as an opportunity. But what ended up happening was it opened a, sort of like a energetic gate between me and the energy of the planet. So the energy of the planet was flying down like I, I wouldn't believe. And I was like, oh, my God, I wasn't doing a full planetary evocation. Hmm. I, I had just only been chanting the name of that genie for like three, four minutes. It's only hmm. been a day or two, so I'm not expecting any immediate. Oh, this was very recent. Oh, yeah, just a day or two. I've been looking at this now, thinking about it, going, wow, this could be used, you know, in, an, in a complete system of magic by itself. Yeah. Because oh, absolutely. Like, you know? You know, I I don't like I don't believe in fast food magic, right? So I don't believe you should right. just think for five minutes and get a result. I'm always inclined to think you need to invest, you know, many 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 hours. But for some reason, this one was only like just five minutes, and it was just opening the gate. So there's definitely a lot of opportunities there for working with the energies of other, as you were saying, the moons and other star systems. And we need to go outside the confines that we've built around ourselves by taking from our ancestors. I'm not saying abandon the teaching for our ancestors. I'm not one of those kind of guys. But I'm saying don't get stuck in the confines. They gave you the right. seven planets. That's nice. Now you know they have moons. Add the <laughs> moons. You know you know a little bit more about our star system. Add more stars. Um, the black holes, I don't know how to touch that safely really. Right. So I wouldn't go there. I, I know that um, maybe eight, nine years ago or, or less I was – Something around that time. I was talking mm -hmm. to David Griffin. We were having just a brief phone call, and he was saying something along the lines that he believed the greatest power in the universe was that of the black hole. So he was mm -hmm. going to to turn on to the power of the black hole. And I was thinking, yeah, but you know, it sucks everything in. 
So whatever you're projecting, whatever you're evoking, it will just eat you. Hmm. Interesting. You know, it's not something you want to evoke to manifest anything. Nothing escapes it. Well, and it's interesting to consider what it is. And if you look at, for example, the symbolism of the lotus wand, at the very bottom you have the most dense part, the earth. The uh, you know, and so what is the most dense possible form of earth or gravity? It'd be a black hole. So if you're trying to elevate, usually a system of magic is you know it assumes that you're human already. It assumes that you're here in the material world and you're going to elevate to more more subtle planes as opposed to more dense planes. Exactly. You want to go up. You want to go in a different direction, really. Um, you know, black holes. But I had the hypothesis at one point. I don't know if it's accurate or not. I could be completely off. So I'm 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 going to throw it out. But you know, it, it's okay if, if you think I'm I'm <laughs> uh, losing my marbles. But I thought if, I thought if all the stars have angels in them, black holes don't happen till the end mm. of the life cycle of a star. It doesn't happen in the beginning. Stars don't are not just born to black holes. They reach a certain phase of growth, development, and toward the end of their life, they have a few oper- you know, a few options, so to speak, and one of those options end up being the black hole down the road, right? Right. A kind of like a death phase. But while other death phase, the star just blows up or you know shrinks into nothing. But then it becomes this, more stars if it blows up and becomes a cloud. Right, it becomes more stars if it blows up. Seems like it continues one, to live. Right, but in in the version of the black hole, it eats. Yeah, but then it it, it shoots out gamma rays and eventually depletes itself. Right, eventually, but in the meantime, it's devouring everything. Yeah, that's true. So I was wondering in my brain if the black hole was really the body of a fallen angel. Interesting. I uh, I was thinking recently about how, in a way, we, you know, like if you if you're looking at a single celled organism, it's hard to say, you know, if you ask if you ask it, how old are you, and it could speak, it might respond, um, I'm about five billion. Right. Um, but if you ask a multicellular organism, how old are you, and they think back, oh well, I started out in an egg or I started out in a womb, so I guess I'm 37. Um, and I'll die one day. And so we, as multicellular organisms, we have that assumption and bias about this concept of being born and dying. But does a star? Good question. Good question indeed. I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> I have no idea. But I'll tell you something that connects it back into it. Remember we mm-hmm. were talking about the, um, the immortals, right? Mm-hmm. And I told you the Sumerians, uh, Sumerians the uh, Hindu had the immortals too. Right. The immortal sages. Well, the immortal sages in the Hindu tradition corresponded with seven stars of the Dipper. Right. What was the name for that? Uh, the Septarishi in Hindu. Yes, the Septarishi. They corresponded them to the Dipper. In the boat? They're depicted riding a boat together? Uh-huh. Yeah, right, the boat. Because in the Sumerians, the same seven appear coming down from the heaven. And when they came down from the heaven, they were called a different number of titles. One of them, of course, was uh, the Watcher. They were called the Watchers or the Guardians of the Heavens. But not just from the heavens. They also depicted appearing from the ocean, half human, half fish. Very interesting. Like the Sirius, the the Dog Star religion. Right, half human, half fish. And in the Greek, they, they, they recognize them there as well as mermaids. And they refer to the leader of them as Oannes in Greek. Uh, and, and they taught mankind what they taught mankind. The, um, 
in Africa there's a tribe that measures the same exact seven. And again, half human, half fish. But they say they come from the heavens and then landed in the earth and created a kind of like a pond or a water habitation in which they lived and then they came out and taught mankind stuff. And then they went back basically to where they came from and it became a source of an alien conspiracy hmm. that, you know, they came from, from, from outer space. But when the Septarishi were mentioned in the Hindu religion, they were each given a lifespan that matches almost that of a star. You know, he will live for 200 million years or, right. you, know, you know, 2 billion years and then he will die. And then he'll be replaced by this one. And he will live for another 2 billion years. And he will die. And he'll be replaced by this one. So we keep going to this idea that their lifespan almost matches that of the stars. Hmm. And they were referred to in the Sumerian as watchers as well. So, uh, I mean, it's just kind of mentioned. It's not like watchers as in Book of Enoch. But it was given as a sort of a general title. You know, okay, we, you know, these are watchers. Moving on. You know, they just threw that at them. With that, a lot of emphasis on what that word means. Just their watchers, their guardians, their this, their that. So we have this here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this this consecutive point. But yeah, I, I guess in, if you take a look at the Hindu tradition, when one of those Saptarishi passes on, he's replaced by another. When one star takes a role, so to speak, and that star dies, it's replaced by another star that takes its role. What advice do you have for somebody who maybe is an eclectic magician, who knows a little bit about Wicca, a little bit about Thelema, and they might then they're interested in incorporating some Arabic magic into their lives? Where do you recommend they begin? If you're looking for something eclectic, like, you know, as you said, the word eclectic, if you're looking for a compilation, something that both kind of bridges East and West, I would recommend magic that works that book is contains a lot of Arabic material, but it's not purely Arabic material. It's a compilation. It says a bridge, right? I wrote it initially as a bridge so that people who are familiar with Western systems, you know, can see something that they, they know already. And then they'll have the Arabic materials added into it. What's the easiest way to get that? Uh, it's available on Amazon, anywhere. Amazon. Okay, so search for, what name are you using these days? It starts with an N, right? Uh, yeah, Nineveh. Yeah, this is the name I use when I'm writing, Nineveh Shadra. If somebody is looking for a classic of grimoire and they're interested in the jinn, I would recommend The Grand Key of Solomon um, by Asabil Barakai. I didn't write it, I just translated it. They can get that one. Okay. If they're, if they're looking for spells, incantations, you know, love spells, stuff like that, then they can get the stuff by Al-Tuhi. There's two volumes out there. Uh, Harut al-Marut and Red Magic. It's jinn spells, basically, using the jinn for spells. If you're looking for taking your stuff to the next level, then you should just check out my reports. Because in the reports, you get a lot of material. If you combine all my reports into a book, six by nine, the size of the Golden Dawn, dimension-wise, you'll be looking at about one five to 2,000 pages. Mm. Excellent. Yes, 1,000. I mean, this would be the big stopper book. And I, I thought about publishing it as a big stopper book, but it would be pirated within 24 hours. So, Didn't you have a, uh, a Sigillium Dea Met in Arabic? Yes, that happened when I was working the Inakian system. And I ended up breaking through using... See, a lot of people don't know this. The, the key to the Inakian system is the Sigillium Dea Met. 
Now, well, of course, it's the key, blah, blah, blah. But really, no, it's the key. What you got to do with it is you got to tap into the power behind the sigillium. Not the names, the power behind it. And the way I've done that is I would put the sigillium underneath my bed when I'm falling asleep so that I'm sleeping on it. My head is resting on it when I'm sleeping. Mm -hmm. And one time I was doing that and I had this really vivid, 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 you know, vivid dream. Very vivid dream. And I, where I walked into the temple and everything was dark and then the walls just completely melted away and I was in space. And I was encountering this intelligence that was there. It wasn't anywhere a dream. It was like an astral experience. And he was floating right in front of me. And it was like this sphere of light that was alive, intelligent. And I, and I realized right away that I was talking to the intelligence behind the Enochian system that we're familiar with. Mm. And I had been working the Enochian system daily at that time since I since I was in the Golden Dawn. And I was staring at that, and I was and actually I was actually a bit scared, really, because I I had been working the Enochian system every day for years, both in the Golden Dawn system and then you know more traditional John D way. And I haven't encountered anything like that. So the energy, the power of it, was just kind of too much for me. So I kind of uh, stopped, and then I what I did is I turned around, and then I recreated the sigillium DMF using the idea that was in the original sigillium, but using the method from the Arabic system. And the reason I did that was because when you start to analyze the sigillium, you find problems. Hmm. The, um, one, in one time, the angels are revealing to D these names, and he asked them to create this table. And this table consists of the letters of the seven holy angels, you know, like Gabriel, Mikael, etc., but he writes them in English, and he puts them together, and then he goes across the names and, and forms the seven sounds of light, and then from there he goes on and on, right? But the problem is, these angels' names are in Hebrew, and you're writing out the phonetic in English. That's not how you say it. So the whole system becomes kind of corrupted when you do stuff like that. And I was like, okay, what happened here? I mean... We, you started the Enochian system with revelations and you were told, okay, put this letter here, put this letter here, put this letter here. And then you come to this and you're looking, okay, why am I writing Mikael's name in English? Right. And then extracting holy names of God from it. How can I believe that Mikael's name in English is the source from which these holy names of God are to be extracted when I know already that Mikael is the Hebrew word? Right. I guess you could say it, that they're Latin letters, so maybe yeah, keying into the Latin old church. Or English, but he's implying to, still the spelling is different. If you were yeah. to take the Hebrew name, go to the original, the right? Yeah, if you yeah, take the original yeah. and you put it on the grid, you won't. It won't fit. Right. There's no seven by seven fitting. It doesn't work. It only works if you write this uh, variation that was familiar during his time, because now even in modern grimoires or modern magic books, the spelling of these angels, a couple of them, is different from the one John D. used. He used the one, the, the version that was familiar to him at the time. Right. So for Very me, sorry, uh, something that shouldn't have moved, just moved beside me. <laughs> I have a crib, right? It's oh, a pretty mm -hmm. big crib. Hmm? Mm -hmm. uh, well, the crib started shaking and moving. 
Like somebody pushed it. Is there a baby in it? No, it's empty. Huh. Interesting. It started swinging like somebody just pushed it. It hasn't moved the entire night. I'm talking <laughs> to you. It hasn't moved. I'm looking at it. I can, you know, I, I, from time to time I look at it. It's right next to me. It doesn't move. I'm not anywhere where I can touch it. It's like, you know, at least four or five feet, six feet, you know, away from me. And it's hung from, from the walls. And it's pretty big, you know, crib. It's for twins. And it just shook like somebody just kicked it. <laughs> I'm staring at it going, why is my crib moving? <laughs> so you're based in the Philippines now? Uh, I am in the Philippines at this time, yes. Um, I came here for medical reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, met my wife. And never came back, basically. Nice. Well, I, I wasn't going to go back without her, really. So right. initially the plan was uh, we will stay together and then... We will go back together. But then she got pregnant. So the plan was, okay, we'll get the baby's papers and then we will go back together again. And then she got pregnant again. So. <laughs> wow, congratulations. Thank you. So I came here single, I mean, like as in one person. And then, um, yeah, I now I have four now kids. Now you're four. Yeah, no, we have four kids. Oh, wow, you're six. Yeah, we're six. That's six excellent. And, yeah, six and three, you know, six and three years basically. That's great. Okay, why the hell did you move? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still kind of by the crib. Because it, it didn't just move like, you know, normally move. It moved like somebody kicked it. And I was like, huh. That's a trip. No a kidding. Oh, it's my house, right? I'm used to this stuff. Jin here yeah. doing things like that all the time. But, you know, it's 7 a.m. in the morning, so any resident genie would probably be asleep. I guess exactly, not. Exactly, right? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I've had Jen do weird stuff to me. Like, you know, I be, especially in this house, you know, I'd be sleeping and because we had the twins. So the twins had to be on the bed, I had no room for me. So I ended mm-hmm. up being a mattress on the floor, you know, the things fathers do for their kids. So I'm lying here on the floor and I wake up and I'm not on my mattress anymore. But it's not that I roll to the right or I roll to the left. No, it's like I got dragged behind. Huh. Now, I don't know anybody that, you know, tossed and turns in his sleep and ended up, you know, six, seven feet behind his bed. Yeah, that's a trip. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in, in this house, unfortunately, people, or fortunately, depending how you see it, people, you know, hear voices all the time, hear people walking up and down, you know. It reminds me of uh, the description of uh, Jack Parsons and the Agape Oasis on Orange Grove back well, in the day. We not know this, but Temple of Isis was not haunted till I moved in. <laughs> they had nothing going on in there. It was just, you know, them and the Ouija board and everything was fine. And I moved in. Next thing you know, toys are moving by themselves and all kind of stuff started going on. It's like poltergeist experiences, right? Because wherever, I, you know, because I moved in and the gin followed. So what you translated here was the speech upon the second orbit or, um, and you know, the word of claim is a bit hard to figure its exact translation to, or sphere, I think it would be sphere, which is Jupiter. The writing out, up, up above your head? Yeah. Interesting. It's basically, it's a speech about Jupiter. Hmm. So the religion of Ishtar. People think, you know, it's a Sumerian or Babylonian, you know, blah, 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 goddess, you know, sex, blah, blah, blah. But really, 
if you take a look at the actual Akkadian and Sumerian texts when they were talking about their these beings, the eighth one brought that religion from heaven. Meaning that the religion of Ishtar is really a watcher's religion. It's not a human religion. It's not a religion that developed naturally or organically on earth. It came from them. They taught it to the humans. They passed it on to them. Now, if you take a look at the Enochian, you will find references where the angels are talking to John D. They say they don't worship Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. They tell John D. make no prayers to Jesus. Don't, don't pray to Jesus. He's not God. Don't pray to him. You know, and Kali's like, oh my God, they're demons. And, mm -hmm. then, they, and then they say, when they're talking more about themselves, they make references to the mother of angels. They have this like queen image that they draw out. And some people said, well, maybe this queen represents the Queen of England. Mm. I don't think so. I think it's the Queen of the Watchers. Right. And, you know, when, when the title for Ishtar was given early on uh, in the ancient Akkadian text, she was known as the Queen of the Stars. Uh, just real quick, you mentioned the Akkadian text. Did she exist before the Akkadians yes, took over? Yes, in the Sumerian text. Oh, in, in pre-Akkadian? And pre-Akkadian. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. I was just wondering because I, I got interested in the Akkadians a bit as like basically the first imperialists in recorded history. Well, uh, it started with um, the, the religion descended down actually on Inmarkar. And um, his, his name and his, his particular uh, watcher gave him the religion of Ishtar. And then he turns it around and he builds the, the white city, what he calls the white city. And then he builds the temple of her, and then he puts her in the temple. He puts Anu, which is space or heaven, in the temple. So he's worshipping space. He's worshipping the queen of the stars, right? Mm -hmm. He's worshipping all this. And then suddenly, out of freaking nowhere, he disappears. And after he disappears, they leave. They just go away. They just depart. They don't come back. They just go away. And they didn't know what to do with them. So what takes what takes after him was a guy called Lugal Banda, which is a warrior, and he builds the first time that an actual warrior king takes over because Inmarkar is a priest king, right? He's a mm -hmm. priest king. It's a, it's a theocracy basically. Right. Well, Lugal Banda takes over and becomes now a, sort of a military imperialship. You know, he's he's a ruler now. He's the boss. He's a general, and the general the, the military takes over, right? That was when they built the separate building uh, that was going to be political only, and that was the first time that, if I recall correctly, I, I, I don't really know much about the buildings at the time because this oh, is okay, okay. an era. Right. This is still before the Akkadian phase, and then the um, and then his son, Lugalbanda's son, takes over after his father, and Lugalbanda's son is Gilgamesh, mm. and Gilgamesh decides to rewrite. The old text, so you have one variation, for example, where uh, Ishtar sends her emissary and she comes down and she builds, right, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, the, the, the throne of the goddess. And then you have another text where now it's Gilgamesh who's building the throne. Hmm. So he, he starts to make these modifications. And you know from the books that Gilgamesh is not like Ishtar at all. He, you know, he's always cussing at her, hissing at her, he's not interested in her, blah, blah, blah. And he goes on a journey to recapture the wisdom of the Apkalu and comes back and says, I got them all. 
I am wiser than all of those immortal sages. He sets himself up in that kind of category. You know, it's kind of like, and there's many negative stories about this guy. But he's very popular in modern literature because a lot of his texts has actually survived. So if you're a mo you know, modern person trying to look for ancient texts of the Sumerians and the Akkadians, you run across Gilgamesh a lot. Yes. But um, no, they disappeared, he took over, and the knowledge disappeared. Now here's the interesting thing. When you take a look at the lifespan of these guys when they were around, the lifespan of the humans when they were around, in the Sumerian king list, people used to live a long, long time. It kept decreasing, but even during the time of Enmerkar, the, the lifespan was, you know, a couple of hundred. He ruled for 400 years. He ruled for 1,000 years. He ruled for 2,000 years. He ruled for 5,000 years. You know, it's years lifespan. When you have, and then you had another city where the same mysteries existed called Kush, and and Orkesh, and then their people used to live the same thing a long time, and then when Gilgamesh takes over, that goes away, hmm. and then when Gilgamesh conquers the other town, the lifespan there drops. So there's a different connection between the existence of these beings coming down, these watchers coming down from above, and the long lifespan of the humans on Earth, and then with their disappearance. The disappearance of their knowledge, we seem to have lost the secret of long life. If you believe those texts, of course. Well, I mean, it's, even you know, I, it's it's fascinating, even as a you know from a science fiction perspective, if these are transdimensional beings that were dwelling among us, it would stand to reason that their medicine, what we've come up with since you know the 1700s or right. whatever. Exactly. But here's the thing: if you're if you're familiar with the Hindu religion. They have this prophecy about Kalki, a kind of a messianic figure that pops up and he goes out there in the end of the world, destroys evil, white horse, very similar to the Book of Revelation mm -hmm. story. Now, Kalki is the last avatar of Vishnu. The first avatar of Vishnu is half human, half fish. Hmm. Just like those guys. But in the prophecy, when Kalki comes back, he brings with him the knowledge of the Saptarishi, the knowledge of the seven immortal sages. He brings it back. And the interesting thing about when he brings it back is this. He creates, or they create, a new breed of humans that live for thousands of years. Hmm. They bring it back. They bring it all back. And they also create giants. Again, you got the Nephilim. You got the giants again. Right. They produce the giants one more time. I mean, the whole thing is just freaking curious. It is. And you tie it up. Now, this could all be an academic exercise. We could be talking about it from a purely mental practice. You know, just you know, it's just nice stuff we're hearing about. Another Union archetypes, even. Yeah, like you know, it's a trivia. But the thing is, this these watchers are ingrained in our magical practice. Think That's about true. it. You know, think about it. They're ingrained in our magical practice. If you're a left hand practitioner, you're calling on fallen watchers, Azaziel, you know, Shemiaza, blah blah blah. If you're Golan Dawn practitioner, you got the Enochian system. You're calling in the watchers via the Nakian system. That's true. It's like, it's like no matter how you flip it, you're still calling the watchers. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really a fascinating idea. And I know that the jinn respond to them very well. They have much respect for the watchers. So there's a, a different connection there. Yeah, anyway, very interesting. Life. I'm, 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 inter I'm keeping you. Yeah, here. thank you very much for, uh, for speaking with me today on the Esoteric Nerd podcast. No problem. And I look forward to, to speaking to you next time, and congratulations on the, the, the family out there, and, 
and uh, you know, good vibes uh, from here in LA, and uh, and hopefully some people will click through and and uh, you know get in touch with you, and if they're interested in that kind of magic, and yeah, I'm, I'm always available to answer questions for people. I'm, cool. I'm pretty, I'm pretty accessible. I'm not one of those guys that you know you have to go. I can lots of doors to talk to. I'm right there on Facebook. I, you know, I'm very responsive. Excellent. We'll talk to you soon, Frater. All right. God is blessed. God is blessed. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you, Nineveh, for being on the podcast tonight. And thank you, Eguchi Takahito, for providing the ominous and absurd Rosenkreutz Orden theme. Thank you, Tom Cruise, for providing the primal tech support screen. Thank you, Koji Kondo, for composing the music for The Legend of Zelda, or in this case, The Legend of Father CRC. Thank you to the Michigan Arab Orchestra for providing the background theme to the teachings of Ibn Arabi. Thank you, as always, to Camille and Kennerly for the lovely harp transitions. And thank you, the esoteric nerd, listening to this podcast. I'll talk to you soon.